When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Voice Hacks Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Z. On the Voice Hacks Podcast, I'll be talking to some of rock and metal's best singers, coaches, and experts about what goes into the mysterious and amazing sounds we make with our voices. If you like this podcast, please help spread the word by sharing it with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and my guests. I'm at Metal Mary Z on Instagram. Don't forget to leave the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, follow me on YouTube at Voice Hacks by Mary Z. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Voice Hacks podcast. It's me, Mary Z. And today we have an awesome vocalist with us, Daniel Graves of Aesthetic Perfection. We're going to dive deep with him into all things vocal, but also some insights into his unique creative process and some of the really cool things that he's been doing as a vocalist to get his music out there. I can't wait to dive into this discussion. If you're an independent musician, this one's definitely going to be for you. There's going to be a lot in here for you. Hello, Daniel. Welcome. Hey, Mary. How's it going? Thank you for having me. It's going amazing. Thank you for being here. This is awesome. All the way. And currently you are located in Austria, right? Or are you still visiting the States right now? No, uh, I've been back home in Austria for, I think it's like six days now, so almost a week, but I'm still kind of suffering from the jet lag. So I think I need some coffee. (laughs) I hear you, man. I have my coffee. I'm doing it. Well, it's the morning for you. Yeah, it's morning though. It's not, it's, you're at, you're in the evening right now. Yeah, it's like 5 p.m. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that makes sense. First, let's dive into you as an artist and acquaint people maybe who don't know you and review some of the things that you're most known for. So your main band and project, but it's really a more of a solo project is Aesthetic Perfection. And this is what you're most well known for. You've been doing really, really well lately. You've had stuff coming on the German charts and uh, several other countries as well. And this is an industrial Well, loosely industrial band, because you're more creative, you let yourself um, come out into other genres, but you have referred to it as industrial pop. So tell us a little bit about industrial pop. What kind of vocal styles do you use for industrial pop? And how did you decide to hone in on that genre? It's almost like a genre that you have sort of developed as well. So yeah, it's a big question. Let me let me see if I can like break it down. I started Aesthetic Perfection when I was 17, so I'm I'm 38 now. I am 38, I think. When you start getting up there, you forget how old you are. But yes, yeah, so, mm-hmm. yep. you know, I've been do I've been doing this for um, you know longer than I've not been doing it, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. So I started this band in in 2001, essentially trying to be Trent Reznor. Like I grew up mm. with Nine Inch Nails. Grew up with Nine Inch Nails, and that was sort of like hearing broken in the in the mid '90s was was basically planted that seed, and I and I just have been basically chasing the pot of gold at the end of that rainbow for the last uh, 
18, 17 years now. Um, and you know, when I, when I, when I started, um, my goal was to be like Trent Reznor in the sense that even though Nine Inch Nails was is an industrial band comes from that scene. It was very dynamic. You know, you you had ballads, you had dance songs, you had like aggressive metal songs, you have fully electronic songs. It's just Trent Reznor really does sort of encompass all things. And I have, you know, again, that's sort of what I've been striving for. And and that was the the goal since the beginning. It's the the goal today. Obviously, I've sort of found my own voice. Um, uh, in the interim, but that was sort of the genesis. And, and, you know, I'd never had any sort of like proper musical instruction. So I was doing like what a lot of vocalists were doing, which was just sort of like letting it rip and, and see what happens. And I think, uh, anyone who's familiar with the industrial scene knows that a whole, whole lot of bands sort of rely on effects to sort of achieve the really aggressive vocal styles. And so that's kind of the world that I came up in. And then, you know, I started, I started touring and, and uh, realizing how problematic it can be to try and have like stomp boxes on stage and singing through them because, you know, feedback is a motherfucker. I started realizing how problematic the uh, distortion units were uh, in terms of like a live sound. So then I started taking the distortion units away and then I'm just shredding my vocal cords every single night. Now, when you're when you're playing one or two shows a year, it doesn't really you know, you don't really notice the wear and tear. And also you're like in your twenties and you don't care yes. about anything. Um, but then you start going on tours that are seven, eight, nine weeks long. And by show two or three, you're like, it feels like there's a golf ball in my throat. And so, yes, you know, you come back from tour and you can't even like speak for like weeks. And that was really what sort of like led me down the road of like, okay, if I'm going to be a, a vocalist, I need to start taking this seriously. So this is about the time that uh, Melissa Cross's Enna Screaming was coming out. And so it opened up a whole new world to me because watching that DVD introduced a whole new uh, set of vocal influences, right? So like I heard about Every Time I Die and, and Lamb of God through that DVD. Yes. And so I was like, oh my God, like these are the people that I should be modeling myself after as a, as a singer as opposed to... Um, you know, like industrial guys, like Skinny Puppy and and, and mm -hmm. Ministry and, you know, great bands, but, you know, not uh, more or less like uh, effect driven and not technique driven. Yeah. Ministry is the one that really comes to mind when you say, you know, using the industrial kind of trend of uh, letting the effect do the distortion. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind for sure. Yeah, a hundred percent. And there's, you know, there's just so many bands that were doing that, and and I didn't know any better. And and so it really was thanks to uh, to that Zena Screaming DVD that that I found other, I found like a a, a new set of influences, and and that kind of got me into uh, metal music. That got me into uh, vocal technique, discovering all the different kinds of vocal techniques that one can have. That's like, oh, there isn't just one kind of distortion. You know, there's like there's three. This is, you know, this is all fascinating. So I, I actually got, I, I dove head first into it. And, you know, now here we are like 12 years later. Yeah. And that's how you and I became acquainted too, because I've had the awesome pleasure of doing a few lessons with you and you've worked really hard. I can personally attest to the work that you've put into your vocal technique and to creating the Screams Live, which totally has paid off for you. You're doing uh, uh, awesome harsh vocals without the effects 
And, and it, you know, like it wasn't magic. It was because you consciously put that effort in. You got exposed to certain things and you realized, oh, gosh, I can actually do this with my voice because you wouldn't believe how many there's still a couple even a couple of voice teachers that I really, really like that just do clean stuff on YouTube that will say, oh, there's no way you can do distortion without some kind of effect. They still think it's an effect or a pedal. But yeah. as we know from some of the vocalists you mentioned and the people in metal bands, the slightly heavier genres that you certainly can do it with your own tissues and your own body as long as you do it the correct way. What I wanted to see was now how does that fit into the structure of industrial pop? When people think of pop, they think of clean singing, but you certainly are not limiting yourself to that. It's industrial pop. So tell us about, sometimes I feel like in metal, they they have these things where the harsh vocals are part of the catchy chorus. You know what I mean? And they do use it in almost a pop sentiment. Um, I one One band in particular I can think of is Arch Enemy. I call it the arch enemy trick where you have this chorus melody and the guitar, but the harsh vocals are actually doing the lyrics and kind of bringing you the hook. And so tell us about working in something you call a type of pop, industrial pop, and how the harsh vocals fit into that soundscape for you. So kind of the industrial pop philosophy, I guess you could call it, um, the, the, the sort of genesis of that was... You know, I started getting into Nine Inch Nails and, and Marilyn Manson and, and these type of, you know, mainstream goth industrial bands. And then, you know, uh, my friends and, and, you know, people I hung out at the mall with would be like, oh, well, you'll love this band or, or this band. And they started like recommending me all these bands that sort of didn't have the same kind of production level or the same kind of like songwriting and stuff like that. And I was like, I did at the time I didn't really register what the difference was, but you know, as I kind of evolved as a, as a songwriter, I recognized, Oh, you know, really a lot of the tricks that these bands are, are using, which are getting them on the radio is they're writing pop songs with a different like timbre, right? So they're writing pop songs with distortion or, you know, uh, with, with like evil uh, vocal tones. Right. So for me, it was sort of this realization that like pretty much anything that we listen to that achieves a kind of mainstream awareness is, is pretty much employing pop music. I don't want to say formulas, but let's say like methods, right? Yes. And so it's kind of been like my mission to uh, make people aware of the fact that so much of the music that they do listen to is actually pop music. It's just, you know, somebody turned on the distortion pedal or you know, threw in a sharp note in their scale or something like that. Also, as a, as a, as a kid, my mom just listened to top 40 radio constantly. So I think what really sort of informed my musical tastes is, you know, in my youth was Michael Jackson, Madonna, Mm. Phil Collins, like all of that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. was just like imprinted on me psychologically. And so I I had to also find a way to make peace with this, like this Madonna loving Phil Collins loving guy. Who's also like, I want to make heavy, dark, whatever music. And, And so that's kind of what industrial pop is, is, is a way to reconcile these two worlds, which are essentially like my main artistic interests. That is so cool. And I can definitely say that that is coming out for you in very uh, real tangible results because your music gets better and you always you're ending up 
people receive it very well. You end up on the charts. It's always very well received. You know, even to your own surprise, I think sometimes, but at the same oh, yeah. time, you know, because as I see your posts and things, you're like, well, I just didn't expect that. And um, and that's cool. That's being very humble and everything. But this is sort of you figured out what it's about learning about what is a good song, what how to write a good song, because it's not just enough to be a good vocalist. You could be a good vocalist, a great vocalist, a phenomenal vocalist, in fact. But if they're not particularly catchy songs or even particularly good songs where you can emote through them, uh, that doesn't really translate well. It does. It's not going to translate into a big hit, unfortunately, or something that just reaches the audience. The reality is most people like less complicated things. The better songs are less complicated. And I always cite one of my favorite de bands, Depeche Mode, because... They're probably one of my my favorite band, and everybody's always surprised to hear that because I'm a metal yeah. person. But it's the same reason. It's because Martin Gore has this great way of writing songs, and this is why every metal and industrial band has pretty much covered Depeche Mode. Even In Flames did a Depeche Mode cover, and they do a version of Everything Counts, and it's uh, and it's all harsh vocals, so it still yeah. translates, you know. And it's because of that writing structure you absolutely nailed it yeah and and i think that's a that's a perfect example of of how you can take a great song and you can sort of uh um uh, transpose it or transform it into whatever genre you want and it will still work like everything mm -hmm. counts you can make that a country song and it's going to be great you can make that a metal song and it's going to be great at its core it's a great song and it's a pop song yes yes pop songs and i think the most popular pop songs we hear have less complicated lyrics. I feel like Trent Reznor falls into this, but I've always felt, I think you could say this about Nine Inch Nails, and I think you could say this about Depeche Mode, people who really dove into the pop song structure without per se being pop themselves. And that is, they convey a profound lyrical idea in a pretty simple context. And it, that is yeah. very difficult to do. I mean, we were just talking about everything counts. Everything counts in large amounts, grabbing hands, grab all they can, you know, profound concepts about the state of, you know, materialism and things that you could philosophically go way deep into, but they've yep. condensed it into a very simple, you know, almost childlike rhyming lyrical format that you can repeat. And I do feel like Nine Inch Nails, I feel like Trent Reznor is really excellent at that too. And I think metal bands tend to get lyrically very complex. And I think that is another thing that is hard to do. Convey your idea in less words, in fewer words to the audience. It's a balancing act, right? Like you, 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 you want to feel like, like, like everything you write is going to be Shakespeare, but you have to remember that you know, uh, printed words are different than sung words. And mm. the, and so the way that your message is delivered is, is different and you need to consider the format and you need to, um, consider how, uh, your audience is going to perceive these concepts. And I think that it's incredibly important to, uh, deliver your message in a way that people can understand, because it doesn't matter how great your message is. If nobody hears it, if nobody recognizes it or, or internalizes it, What's the point? No, it doesn't matter if it's the best thing ever. Yeah. And it's really interesting, too, because then you think about bands like Sigur Rós or something like that, who ha literally have songs in a made up language, yeah. you know, and 
yet some somehow that reaches people too. That's just the soundscape. So at the same time, you know, we have some examples like that. However, certainly that band is not on as popular as they are. They're still not uh, uh, reaching it, like they reach a lot of people, certainly, but not the degree of a Michael Jackson or even a Nine Inch Nails or anything like that. So, you know, we can we do see that there's room for all types of art, but certainly the art that reaches the most people is pretty is somewhat has similar characteristics is somewhat specific in some aspects. As we mentioned, you could pull those aspects across different genres, but there are some specifics to it. So now I wanted to talk about the really cool project you've been doing, because one of the things I want to talk about on the voice hacks podcast is not just vocal techniques and how to do stuff and your approaches. That's what, that's all part of it. But a lot of the people I coach, I get all of these questions about how to be an artist in the digital era. And you're yeah. really nailing that particular area of expertise and, and navigating the digital era, which is interesting for people like you and I who grew up in the analog era. We had the, the music industry is completely different than it was before even 2009, to be honest, uh, really, I think since 2013, it's completely changed because um, I signed a record deal in 2009 that just <laughs> would not be a thing anymore. Yeah. It would be a totally different deal uh, uh, and everything like that. So I would say that what I wanted to ask is you have this 12 month project you've been doing. You've been putting out a song every month, but you've also been doing something really interesting. You've been having certain requirements. It's almost like a creative challenge that you've posed to yourself, if I'm not mistaken, or is this something that patrons and or followers have posed to you? Can you tell us a little bit more about this project? Yeah. So I think like a lot of people um, at the sort of start of the pandemic, I got a little lazy, right? Like I, I spent a lot of time just, you know, here I'm in my studio, just f fiddling around, twisting knobs, like buying toys. It's like, <laughs> oh, let me buy this weird delay pedal and let me run it through this 40 year old Russian synth. And it's just like, yeah, this is fun. But you know, after, after it's like nine or 10 months, I was like, I haven't really finished anything. Um, and I, ah, yeah, I felt a little bit uh, you know, directionless. I need some sort of structure to keep me focused, to keep me in line, to give me purpose, right? And so I wasn't sure how, you know, when the world was going to start reopening. If I'm sitting here for another year and I don't have my band here, I can't do live streams or, part, you know, I can't do live stream shows or anything like that. I was like, why don't I just kind of revive the singles concept that I had that I had done back in 2016. And I can, I can go back to that in, in, a, in a minute. But, um, you know, I'd done a singles thing before. And I was like, oh. what if I really double down and try to create, write and finish music as quickly as I possibly can and, you know, release it at the first or second Friday of every month? Because I watched some of my colleagues release albums amidst the pandemic, right? And they just tanked because the timeline refreshes so quickly. Oh, yes. That it's like, sure, you can promote something for two, three, four weeks. But after that, 
The algorithm is just going to shut you down. Your audience is going to stop listening because they're going to be like, stop harping on this. I mean, it's really, really hard to keep the momentum, the enthusiasm going. And so I was like, look, if the timeline refreshes every three to four weeks, then I should be at the top of people's timelines every three to four weeks with something new. Uh This was a creative challenge, but also sort of like a strategic business thought. And and so I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to write and release a song every single month. And like I said, I'd I'd gone the singles route before because, um, I'm always trying to keep my ear to the ground and, and figure out what other artists are doing. And, you know, uh, outside of the alternative scene, right? Like talking about EDM and pop music. I mean, like these artists have known this for a couple of years that it's all about staying in the timeline, Mm. always giving the audience something new. And, it's also important to recognize that our attention spans are getting very short with yes. you know, sort of the world that we live in. We're just constantly distracted, constantly have, you know, notifications popping up on our phone where it's like asking somebody to sit down and listen to 10 new songs, listen to an hour worth of new music and really yes. digest it and internalize it. It's like, dude, you are like, you're pulling teeth here. Such a great point. Yeah. Back in 2016, I was like, okay, this is, you know, this, I'm going to try this. And my label at the time was like, we don't really want you to do this. We want to stick with the whole, the whole like album cycle formula. And that's when I decided to step away from my labels and go fully independent because it allowed me the freedom to kind of the way that I viewed it, sort of stay relevant, keep up with the times, right? But then my audience was very, very vocal about me making another record. They were like, please do this. And I was like, are you sure you guys want this? Like, I, right. I don't think people want this. But uh, I then I asked sort of my Patreon supporters and they were like, you got to do this. So I did it. And I viewed it like a like a um, like a like a commission, like I was a sculptor or a painter. And somebody said, hey, make this piece of art. And I was like, OK, this is something I wouldn't make on my own. But this is a challenge. And I and I and I made that record and it was a lot of fun. Um, and it did well. It did better than I had anticipated. Just so that people could go listen to it if they wanted to. Which record was that? What was it called? So that was uh, 2019's Into the Black. Okay, yeah. Again, you know, that record, I wrote 10 songs. I spent maybe 10 months of my life on that album, uh, maybe a little bit longer. But there's one song that people listen to from it called Gods and Gold. Like that is the popular song you listen to sort of like all the other tracks in that album. It's like, you see their popularity, the the little sort of like bars of popularity that you see on Spotify and stuff. It's like, they're all like one. And then the, the, the lead single, it's like, you know, five or whatever the sort of limit is. It has a great video too. It's a really nice video as well, but yeah. You know, that's sort of the way things work. And I felt like it was a great artistic project, but it did really validate my sort of suspicions that, Albums were not what people wanted. And even though they say they want them, I think in practice, it's just not that way. Yeah. And also, you know, a full album doesn't come up. You know, it is very hard because that's the one thing that record labels, I'm not super enthused about label deals anymore either because labels have a very very hard time adjusting from analog to digital era and the way contracts have been set up for 
I mean, almost a hundred years, um, maybe like 80 years or we could say has been this album format, you know, sort of the classic Motown, like, you know, yeah. record deal format that we've all been modeling, even metal labels, even, even if it's smaller numbers, it's the same concept of like publishing and ownership and blah, 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 blah. And I agree with you a hundred percent. The way kids absorb music too, you know, when you and I were growing up, we had a lot more analog. So music got more attention because it was in a timeline being refreshed. So you would pick up uh, uh, an album and that would be your thing to do. You, you, you didn't have other media to consume. You would focus on that. You'd listen to it. You would have the time and the attention span to digest it because it wasn't a constant feed. We didn't have any of the digital feeds and there wasn't other ways to discover music. So it, there are some things missing, I think, nowadays that people don't get to enjoy from the album format. One that I always mention is the album um, River Runs Red by Life of Agony because they have all these in-between tracks that tell the story of the kid throughout the whole record and you really just can't do that anymore. It's even hard to listen to that with the in-between tracks on Spotify um, yeah. you know, to get someone to do that kind of soundscape. So I think you've nailed it on the singles and that's been much better for you, right? So you're doing one single a month. Is that the concept now that you've stepped away from that? Yeah, so the idea was that I would uh, I would write and release one song every month. And a lot of people are like, oh, you're probably just sitting like on a bank of 12 songs and you're just sort of like kicking your feet up and just like, oh no, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm writing these songs like as I go. Because I, you know, a lot of times uh, when an artist uh, makes a record, right, like they go into the studio and they're sort of isolated from the world and that record is a snapshot of who they are in that moment. Even if it takes them a while, it's still like, encompasses who they were at that point in time. It's, it's like a time capsule, right? But this is like, the way that I, I viewed it was like, sure, this is a time capsule of this year, but the music is being created as I'm getting feedback from the world. Like the music is coming out into the world and I'm getting feedback and it's not even, even if I'm not consciously trying to please people or, or, or reflect on what people are giving back to me, I do think that it is more of like a conversation with my audience where it's like, I sort of hear what they're saying. And when I sitting in here, even if I'm not conscious of it, I'm sure that I'm sort of taking their feedback into account. And it feels much more organic, much more like a conversation rather than like, okay, I've locked myself away from all of you for the last year. And now here's my record, take it or leave it. It's a different it's a different thing. How cool, though, because I think a lot of people are afraid of the digital era. But listening to you talk, that's so liberating. How neat is that, that you can put out one or two songs and you can reflect the way you feel at the time? I mean, this has been a crazy year. There's a lot mm -hmm. to contemplate artistically, to reflect, to reflect back out through your creativity and it has been changing rapidly. You know, you could write an album about the pandemic or anything that's been going on over the last year, but three months into the pandemic, the whole vibe has changed. There are other issues, you know, so even yeah. societally, the, the things that you would reflect. So that actually sounds quite liberating creatively. It is so much fun because like, Think of like all that's writing on it when you make an album, right? It's like you you, sh you shoved all of your chips onto one concept or sound or something like that. It's like, you know, every single single that I have dropped this year sounds completely different than anything else that I've done. It's like each single is is its own thing. And, and it's like, 
okay, you don't, I'm not married to these, these sounds, whatever. You don't like it. I don't care. I'm going to put out another song in three weeks. anyways, Right. Yeah. And that's kind of a great point is you don't have to have the same mixer you, you can. And if you want to change anything, cause sometimes just the audio production, we do a mix on an album and we look back and we go, gosh, I would have had someone else do the mix or I don't like it as much as I used to. But now you have 10 or 12 songs that are committed to that sound and that mix. Yep. You know, so in your case, if there's something that you wanted to change or that you didn't absorb as much or maybe didn't work as well, ultimately, like after, now that you've settled and digested and it's been out, you've got full reign to change that on the next one. The mixes don't have to sound the same because with albums, there's this kind of, you know, goal for uniformity. So it's going to be across the whole record. As you mentioned, 12, 10 songs. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me is the fact that I've learned how to get out of my own way because when, when we're like in the creative process, we just, you know, like we were saying earlier, it's like you want something, you want everything that you make to be Shakespeare, to be perfect, to be your, 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 your Bohemian Rhapsody or whatever. And it's like, you, you can sit down and you can fiddle with it and, and change stuff just like nonstop. It's like with this, I'm literally like, okay, this idea is good. Go with it. Okay. Chorus. Good. All right. Cool. All right. Did I nail that take? Yeah. Good enough. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, I, I don't even have the luxury of fiddling too much. You just sort of run on instinct. And, you know, the fact that I've been doing this for 20 years, I do feel like I kind of maybe know what I'm doing. So it's like I've got a little bit of, yeah. um, you know, uh, expertise isn't the right word. But it's like I, I just sort of uh, depend on my skill set to get me through as opposed to whatever. But it's crazy because I've noticed this in the past uh, that the songs of mine that do the best are the songs that I just sort of went on instinct on, the songs that I created in the shortest amount of time. And wow. this is just even more of a, of, a, of a confirmation of that where it's like, dude, just get out of your own way. Let inspiration take you where it goes. And if it doesn't work on this song, who gives a shit? There's going to be more songs in the future. Yeah, and you've seen that because the singles that you've put it, put out have done phenomenally well. Some of the best stuff that you have put out as far as numbers charts and the proof is really truly there you know yeah it's wild so the first song that we we started with was uh called sex and i wrote that i want to say in like two weeks and when i was done with it i was like okay whatever and i was like i even knew that had i made had i been like working on a record i might have like cut that song. I might've been like, yeah, I want something a little bit more artistic or whatever. And it's like, I can do better. When I was done with it, I was like, I know I can do better than this song. I put it out. It is the biggest song I've ever made in my entire career. Wow. What a lesson in overthinking and this whole artistic thing about finished, not perfect. I'm always saying that to my vocal clients because it's the same for every artist. We could fiddle with it forever, but if you don't put deadlines on it, um, you'll do the over perfecting thing. And oddly enough, that's not really what works. And it's that paradox of choice. You know, they always say if you have a choice of like a hundred mustards, it's like harder for you to choose than if they oh, yeah. just like, here's Dijon, here's this, here's that. And you have three yeah. flavors to choose from. And it's the same thing with the vocals. If you have unlimited time, the paradox of choice, like you're constantly going, well, I can add this more. I can do that. Like it just becomes like all these options and you could they could go forever theoretically. So what a great real life example for everybody to see of you just went for it and it worked. And the cool thing is when you 
control your own releases, it's not a label, you can pull things down off of distribution. If you really sure. hate it and it really tanks, you don't have to leave it out there, even on Spotify, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a good risk to take, I think. I think it's, I think it's, it's just been so, uh, so stressful because I, I tried to get two months ahead of it, you know? So it's like when I started in, in January, like I had the January song and the February song done and ready. And I was like, okay, uh, so I'm going to stay two months ahead all the time. And then of course, come, come March, you know, it's like two or three days before it's got to be in the distributor. I'm like, fuck, am I going to make the deadline? Oh my God. You know, freaking out and, and, you know, I make the deadline. And ever since then, it's been like that. It's just like, oh my God, I've got like five hours to, to get it to, you know, upload it to distro kid to make sure it comes out on this date or whatever. And is is it is so, so stressful. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's been so uh, enlightening and, and, and incredibly rewarding. And I feel like, I feel like when this is all said and done, I'm going to go sit on a beach for a couple of weeks and not think about music, but then it's going to sort of reshape the way that I approach all of my creative endeavors in the future. That is so cool. And I think people are really going to get inspired by listening to this and thinking about how to approach a career from a modern perspective. One of the things that I hate Everyone's also also going to secretly hate me for saying this, but I kind of hate music movies. I, I kind of hate music career movies. I don't like A Star is Born, I, even if the vocal performances are good. I don't like, you know, the movies where people just become a star, you know, and, and also a lot of music movies or biopics are based off of the old music industry model, which is not realistic at all anymore and completely different. So I like that where we get this real inspiration from people doing it off the new model, like you're doing it. And we're not looking at this 1950s record contract model or the concept that someone will discover you again. You're not waiting around, you're creating, you're putting things out. And that actually brings me to another area that I wanted to talk about and in your career, which is, so you're an American, you're from California originally. Is that correct? Yeah. You're also now an Austrian. And so obviously industrial music and metal, I have a ton of Austrian and German vocal students, just an absolute ton of them. And it shows you how proportionately, obviously in Europe, countries like Finland too, where Gothic industrial and metal are much more part of the mainstream music digestion than they are here in the United States. And I would say a lot of countries outside the United States, it's that way, South America, Japan, you know, so how has, so first of all, it's been very admirable. I always admire people who immigrate to another country, learn another language and culture, especially Americans, because we get off so easily speaking English in the global sense. And we don't have those challenges as much. So I really admire uh, folks who do what you've done. But at the same time, I also want to see how did that affect your career? That has definitely had to change things for you. I mean, what's the difference between trying to get things to happen in the States versus trying to get things to happen in these genres in Europe? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I I'm from like the suburbs of Southern California. I used to believe that I had to live in Hollywood, you know, to like make my big break. And so I, you know, as soon as I turned 18, I moved to LA and then, you know, then I made my way actually into the heart of Hollywood. And I was like, okay, this is really going to get my career going. And it didn't, didn't really work out too much. Then I met a girl 
an Austrian girl at a German music festival I was playing in 2005. And I was like, I kind of like this girl. It's not really working out for me in LA. How about I just sell everything I have and move to Berlin? Maybe, you know, Berlin's a really good electronic music place, right? That's awesome. So I did that. And I thought, I thought, okay, Berlin, right? That's going to be my place. Nothing really <laughs> changed living in Berlin. <laughs> and uh, this girl uh, that I had met, uh, she actually was able to do like an exchange student year at the university in Berlin. And then when her exchange student time was up, she had to go back to Austria and and I was like, okay, well, I'll go with you. So went back to went back to Austria to Salzburg, which is like it's really huge, like music town, but for like classical music and you know, it's like the town of Mozart, right? Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, you know, whatever. It's nothing. You know, Salzburg is beautiful, but it's not really gonna do anything for me in my career. And Salzburg is actually where the most stuff happened for me or things started happening for me. And it wasn't because of the city. It was just because like, you know, I was, I wasn't spending my time hustling, trying to like make it in the industry. I was just writing music and then putting out music. And so, you know, during my time there, I put out a couple of records that did really well in like the goth industrial scene. Uh, ironically, like they did better in the States than they did in, in Germany at that time. And so I was like finding myself touring in the States a lot more than I was touring there. And, and then um, that girl and I got married. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, she got a job in L.A., and I was like, at the university in LA, I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to, okay, I'm like, you know, my music career's going, I'm going to go back to LA and I'm going to take over that town, right? It's like, they're surely going to care about all of my success overseas and the, you know, nobody cared. I went back to LA and I was like, you know, trying to do just doing horrible LA guy, like music industry stuff, like rubbing shoulders, like, Hey, famous guy, blah, 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 blah. You call me. Oh I call yeah. You. The whole LA thing. Yeah. Oh God. It's so bad. It's so lame. And after a couple of years, I just got so exhausted and burnt out by like doing that. And I was like, I started to realize, especially in the internet age, it actually doesn't matter at all where you're at. And when I started looking at bands like Purity Ring, you know, who are in all the way up in Calgary in Canada where nothing is going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, Although offense, I do. Calgary. I do love Calgary. But I do yeah, like they're, Calgary. They're a country music town. Certainly. They are. They've got the stampede there. So it's it's not really a place for like dark music. And then, uh, you know, you look at all of these metal bands that are coming out of these villages in Sweden and Norway. It's like these guys aren't getting successful because they're in New York or Berlin or London. Like they're just where they're at making amazing music. And that's what they're focusing on. And so I just sort of took the position of like, don't let where you're at decide your success. You decide your success, especially in the internet age when you can, you know, we can have this conversation through zoom. You know, it's like, I, we don't need to be sitting in the same room. Like, we needed exactly. to 20 years ago. So it's obviously true that goth music, industrial music is huge in Germany. Like that is, that is like totally true. They have all the big festivals and things like that. In Austria, actually it's black metal. So you go to any like, like not pop music bar, it's all black metal. That's really interesting. Black metal. That's such an extreme. So you never really expect to hear that. There is a German sort of industrial metal band that I just got into recently because she has a really low voice, this band Null Positive, but it's all in German though. So it's hard oh, cool. for me to give that to my students um, and everything like that. But it's really cool music, but yeah. 
Germans love the low voices still. So man, yeah, they they really do love the the like just as as low as as the voice can go. It's I don't know that just resonates with them. It has been that way since classical music, though. Even when I studied classical music in college, I mean, since the 1700s, that's been their jam, you know. Really? I would, yeah. I would, I, all the mezzo contralto repertoire that I would sing, the Schubert, the Schumann, the Brahms, all of that, all of the um, 1800s really like dark, like we're all dying of cholera music. <laughs> was German. I, I sang all German repertoire. I don't speak German, as I've talked to you about many times, even though I have a German last name, very like the Smith of German. The thing is, I am second generation American. I'm disconnected from the culture a bit. But the thing is, in, in classical singing, they make you take pronunciation in the languages. So you don't sing it with an American accent horribly. <laughs> But but yeah, they have been that way since then. And and they're all really dark, too. It shows you like some of the songs I sang, like one in particular that I really liked was called Der Tod und das Mädchen, Death Ooh, and the yeah. Woman, you know, and it was yeah. all like this conversation of death and a woman, you know, so you can see that going all the way back to the 1800s and 1700s. They were really into dark music. So culturally, yeah. it fits to me looking at it from a classical perspective. It doesn't surprise me at all. But that's wonderful that you've been able to go over. So now, obviously, internationally, you, you've you been able to perform, but is it a little bit more convenient that most of the festivals are in Europe and you kind of happen to be there? That's got to be a little bit helpful. Not really, because no. my band is based in America. <laughs> so... I mean, it's it's just one less plane ticket, right? So it's like, and then and then I got to go over there to rehearse, so it's just. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I get it. That's true. Now, my question for you too, with live stuff, is how long of sets are you doing? I mean, you're talking about doing seven week, eight week tours, and when you're doing these things, let's give the new vocalists a perspective. There's really no off days. If there's an off day, what most people don't realize is if there's an off day, it's because the drive from Salt Lake to <laughs> Seattle yeah, yeah. is, is going to take you two days to get there. Mm-hmm. It's not because you're getting a, you know, a day off to rest. So talk yeah. about the intensity and the level of which you've got to maintain your voice on the road. It's, it's really hard to sort of like explain to other people, like your band members or your booking agent, where you're just like, you know, that 14 day stretch where it's like, you know, f- 14 headline being shows one after another, you know, it's not really going to work for me. And they're just like, but money. And you're just like, yes, but <laughs> voice. And then, you know, and then, you know, your drummer's like, yeah, I, you know, sometimes I break a finger when I play and I, you know, it doesn't bother me. And you're like, I understand. And I, and I, and I am sympathetic. I do on, I do, I do get that other musicians have their own sort of hurdles to overcome uh, when it comes to uh, performing. But your voice, especially as you get older, the difference between like now you know, at, at 38 and like 25, it's just, it's just night and day. And, and so I actually put a cap, like I will not play longer than 75 minutes. I won't do it. 60 would be per, would be ideal for me just because like, I think that after 60 minutes, like your focus and your sort of like exhaustion begins to set in, no matter how well-trained you are. So it's like when yeah. I see when I see bands like what's the what's that one metal band that's like doing like three hour shows? It might be periphery. It's one of those sort of like uh, legacy bands. I forget. And they put them all online too. And that singer, like he's just doing extreme vocals for like three hours. And I'm like, you are 
godly. Like how I'll have to look them up and, and send it to you. Yeah. I don't get that. Yeah. I'm, I, I have no idea how this person is, is able to do this, but like after like 60 minutes, uh, even after training, you know, for a couple of months or, or before the tour, you know, because you have to work your way up to that. You know, when I'm thinking about going out, out on the road again, you know, I haven't sang for like an hour straight of, of, you know, in two years. So I'm going to really have to try and build my uh, stamina back up and I'm going to, I'm going to try and take two, three months to, to do that, to work my way back up to where I was uh, pre-pandemic. But, you know, you look at a lot of other metal bands, you know, they're even headlining with encores and they're done at 60 minutes. Yeah. And maintaining that intensity for one hour. And that's the thing I tell people for practice too, like one hour a day, you know, like an hour. And then I was like, that's it. It's like, no, the voice has a limit. It is teeny tiny muscles. And even like you said, even when you have training, there's, there is an inherent level of energy that it requires to execute the sounds. It's inherently difficult. It's just like being an advanced athlete. Michael Phelps can swim, but he's there is a time at which that quality will start diminishing. He will start to get yeah. tired. To maintain the level of intensity of that athleticism, you can maintain it for this period. And just like the vocalist, you know, all those athletes have to work their way up to that level to begin with. And then it can only be maintained for a certain period. And this is also why I explain to I don't think this is so much of a case because you I don't, I don't know, but you'll have to tell me. But with your music, I don't know if it's as much of the case, but certainly in power metal, where the guys are always doing these really high things all the time, even the most super high-voiced, skilled, super technique guys I've toured with, they play the whole set down a whole step, usually on tour. Yeah. It has nothing to do with their vocal range. It has to do with everything we're talking about. The vocal economy yep. over seven weeks of doing that for an hour. I think a lot of people really also don't stop to consider all the externalities that are involved as well. It's like, you know, when you're re when you're recording, you're at home, you're probably getting a good night's sleep. You're not stuck in uh, in in a van for two days during on that drive from Salt Lake to Seattle or Portland, you know, with the AC blasting like it's just like once you get out on the road, there's just so many factors that come into play that really make it a crapshoot every night. It's like, how are you going to feel today? You know, you can do everything in your power to be at your best. You can not smoke, not drink, all that kind of stuff. Like I quit smoking a few years ago. It's been it's been great. You know, I certainly don't drink like I was back when I was 25. Oh, God, I hear you. No matter what I do. Like I still wake up one more, you know, every morning, like, how am I going to, am I going to feel when I start doing my warm ups? And, you know, and you, you are always kind of like got in the back of your mind, like, is that a, is that a weird tickle? Is it a little bit, does my voice feel heavy, right? You start going through these things. You start psychologically like, ah, oh, it's so bad. Cause you're, you're not making it any better by doing that. But you know, these are the sort of things that are going on in your, in your brain. And it really is because all of these things that you have zero control over are, are involved. But yeah, so like I have a strict like 75 minute limit. I will not sing or play longer than 75 minutes, no matter what any booking agent or band member tells me. one more song. You're like, nope, I got to drink my tea and go to bed. I feel like that's a long set, you know, 45 minutes, 30 minutes is like an opener, shorter set, but 75 minutes is a long set, I think. Yeah. 
For sure. You should not probably be trying to do exactly what you did in the studio. It's unrealistic. And as you mentioned, there's all these other factors. Like there's been times when tour goes well and you have money. And even when you, the, the funny part is even when you do well on tour and you can afford a hotel room, you don't have time to go get one when you're traveling across a continent, really. You maybe might have four hours that you could sort of crash in one. Yeah. Um, that's why tour buses have bunks and things. And, and so even, or even when you have money for food, you stop at the gas station in Wyoming and they have like a cheese stick and one really old bag of chips and you're like ah like so you can't even eat or sleep properly even if you can afford it even if you want to even if you have a luxurious tour bus and you're really famous it's still really not at all the ideal for giving your best vocal performance and to the audience like that's the one show they go to so they're expecting it to be the same or yeah. to have their mind blown for you it's show 20 you know yeah obviously as as you were saying like bands like mine who are we have backing tracks you can't just like tune down but one of the things that i've tried to do ever since i watched a queen live performance because I'm, I'm just like a massive queen fan and yeah. what vocalist isn't like for like sure. crazy over freddie mercury right but you know i actually spend a lot of time like watching other bands uh performances like some of the greats and just kind of like trying to take notes and cues like how do they perform without like wasting all their energy or their air and you know stuff like that and what i thought was so great about queen was that uh, Freddie Mercury, you could tell sometimes if he was having an off night and instead of the band like transposing, he would just sort of sing a different harmony or, or just, you know, instead of going for the big, long high note, he'll go for the lower uh, high note, you know, which is, you know, a harmony or, or something like that. And I was like, this is so clever. And it was such a such a testament to his agility and self-awareness yes. as a vocalist. That's always the other option. Instead of totally changing the key, you can just do a harmonically relevant interval, right? So if the high note was the fifth, you could go to the third. But it does take a level of super level of skill to do that. And certainly Freddie Mercury had those advanced musical skills to be able to do that. But that's a really good point. And a lot of times, to be honest with you, the audience isn't musically inclined enough. The majority of audience members aren't musicians. And so, so many times, just like they won't notice the tuning down, they don't really notice some of that stuff either. Or the other thing that I often do myself, but that I always think is going to sound bad, but then I hear it back, you know, and I'm like, oh, that didn't sound bad at all, is to sing it in a slightly different way. Maybe it's a, a, a note that you would have belted in the studio, but maybe that's just not happening. Like you, you're coming up to it and you can feel it. So mixing it for a guy vocalist, maybe falsettoing it, if you will, instead of belting it, stuff like that, where you either change the way you do it or yeah, you do a harmonically low note. And I love that you brought up that you watch other vocalists and take notes about how they've done things because we can see through the performance and see the things that they're doing as artists, which the audience is still kind of not really seeing all those details. And that's a huge thing for vocalists is to watch other vocalists. Back in the day, I used to watch guys like, um, same thing, Randy Blythe. One guy that I watched a lot actually 
that got me really motivated for stage was Brian Fair from Shadows Fall. And I think all super professional vocalists do this kind of watching other vocalists for what they're doing on stage. And I would recommend that to any of the new people listening. If you want to get an idea, look at what the people that you idolize are actually doing up there in their live shows. I think it's also really important to never stop learning. Like, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, since I was 17, I've been doing this for over 20 years, but I I feel like there's still so much more to learn. There's so much more like development that I can achieve as a, not just a vocalist, but as a performer and, you know, all this kinds of stuff. And I, I think a lot of people tend, especially when they get to like my age, right? Like they start feeling like, all right, I put in the work. Now I'm just gonna sort of like ride the wave and I don't, you know, I don't need to put in any more work, mm. which I find very sort of, I don't understand that that mindset because to believe that you have sort of hit the ceiling and that there's nowhere else to go is, I can't comprehend it. Yeah, and, and that also gives people stagnance. That's why a lot of people's careers will roll off you know, after a certain point, because all you can do is repeat at that point. So if you're not willing to grow or learn, one person that actually gave me a lot of inspiration with that was I saw on the, I don't watch these shows very much. I kind of fell off at the, after the first season, but the first season I liked the masked singer. I liked it a lot Okay. because they had like a lot of vocal performances, but they had Exactly what you're saying about a person who never stopped learning. So one of the people who was on the show that got really far, I think he came in second. Actually, two of the people that came in the top three were much older. Gladys Knight and Donny Osmond were in the top three. And it's masked. You didn't know that they're in their 60s and 70s. In the case of Gladys Knight, she's like 70-something and she has like 19 grandchildren. (laughs) And a, a woman who literally, both of these performers literally had no reason to be on that show. They have lots of awards, accolades. They really didn't. And it's a very difficult show to be under all that hot, that's very heavy costuming, very difficult for older people. And, you know, both of them are saying things like this is just a goal. I want to go for it. I want to try to see what I can do. And in their sixties and seventies, And Donnie had said in his things, and I'm not a Donnie Osmond fan. It just kind of blew my mind though, because he said he was going home and literally watching his shows after a huge lifelong career. He's done it since he was 12 or maybe even younger. He started as a really little child. So he's more experienced than most performers. And he was still going home and critiquing himself and watching those videos and watching himself every night and trying to win, even though he didn't have to. And he was 60 something years old and he's still trying to be better. You know, it really shows you how important that is and why these two people in their late age made it to the top three on like a pop, you know, singing show because they never stopped trying to get better. And yeah, that that's so funny because they they have the masked singer here, um, but it's it's all a bunch of celebrities that have no idea how to sing. (laughs) (laughs) It's. It is absolutely mm-hmm. atrocious. It is like tort. Like I, I subjected my wife to a number of episodes of it, and she gets like like <laughs> angry because of how terrible it is. Um, and I, I, you know, I just sort of like watching the car crash. But it really is just a bunch of like Austrian celebrities that are just have no idea how to sing, and then they're you know they're all singing in English, right? So there's heavy accent, everything's atonal, and I'm just like, what is the appeal of this show? <laughs> 
Oh, that's so funny because that's very different than the American version, which had like just ridiculously good singers. I mean, they had a couple people that they would delete early on, like Terry Bradshaw and okay, <laughs> some okay. other celebrities that were like just not very good at singing. It was pro, pro athletes and things, and because they yeah. just want people they know will get eliminated real fast. But the always sure. the top singers. I just fell off because it was too many people and it was way too hard to keep track of. The first season was just a few people. But uh, that was just a side thing I learned. I did not expect that. But to see these much older artists and then it really hits you. Oh, this is why. <laughs> and also there was a lot of keys and transpositions, you know. Yeah. A lot of the songs were not in the original key. And they're either down a couple of steps in the case of Donny Osmond, who's like a baritone. And um, Gladys Knight's a mezzo. So she was either doing stuff that were mezzo songs. So these people didn't have particularly high voices either. And they were transposing the keys. And yet they were wasting people about half their age. They did get yeah. beat by T-Pain, actually. He can actually sing quite good. Of course he out. can. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He's but a great singer. Nobody knew it was him because of the auto-tune. Yeah. So they, nobody yeah, knew what his course. voice sounded like. But the thing is, is the point to circle all the way back around is whether you play rock, whether you play metal, whether you do industrial, if you stop at 35 or 38 and you think that you don't have anything else to learn, you've got to go watch some of these old people literally double our age still yeah. putting that much effort into it. And then you realize that's what makes a pro right there, you know? So absolutely. Absolutely. You can't lose the spark, right? I can't yeah, it blew my mind. I was like, well, there it is. If I don't live up to what, you know, th these guys got me. <laughs> what can I say to that? I can't ever complain now. People in their 60s or 70s, you know, I've got to do it. It makes you be like, all right, well, I guess I got to keep working. I got my work cut out for me. We do see some older legacy folks like that in metal, too. If you look at a guy like Randy Blythe, their biggest record didn't even really hit till he was like 33, 34. You know, yeah. another good example of somebody who's always working hard, still works hard. He moves around the stage like he's someone much younger than he is now, because I think now he'd be in his 50s. And so certainly he looks a lot more youthful. He keeps going. He keeps putting effort into it. So we see a lot of that. That's a really valid point. I want people to dive into their mind is that you don't have this stopping point and you'll literally be wasting like another 30 years, you know, so. Yeah. So you've done this industrial genre have you ever sang other genres would you ever do vocals in other genres does that just hold no appeal to you at all do you ever have musical inspiration outside of this genre do you collab um or is this just something where you're just like no this is my thing this is where i stay I, i'm not interested in doing other vocals like i was saying earlier you know it's like i grew up with like top 40 music and i don't feel any sort of duty to stick to any genre or style or anything like that. Like I would love to, you know, do Broadway or something like that. Wow, like I would, yeah. I, I would love to do it. And I think it's just because I love singing and I love learning how to um, use my voice in as many different ways as possible. I also love voice acting, you know, so I'm actually like voicing a, a, a character on like a small animated show right now. Oh, how cool. And I was only able to create the character, create the voice for this character because of, you know, the harsh vocals that I learned. And wow, I was so inspired by the fact that I could do that because, you know, I was 
I was asked to create this character and I was like, oh man, I was very stressed. I was like, I don't know if I could do that, but I would really love to. So I, you know, I'm just going to give it my best shot. And then I like really built the, the sound out of, you know, some like singing exercises. And, and it was through that skill set that I was able to create the, the character. And I was, I got so stoked that I just want to keep doing it. So yeah, it's like Broadway voice acting, pop singing country, bring it on. I'm in, I'm down. That is really cool. And I have talked about this a number of times. I work with a few different people who there is actually kind of a demand. And I've coached to several voice actors. There is kind of a demand for harsh vocals in voice acting. Whenever there's a sometimes it doesn't work in real acting because if there's not a suspension of disbelief with a cartoon or a um, video game, I don't know that people in an actual real life, you know, horror movie scenario would no one's going to scream in a fry scream. <laughs> that just doesn't no. sound realistic. But when you do a video game or, or yeah. a, a, a cartoon, which is most of the people that I've coached that do sort of harsh vocals and acting, the sky's the limit. You can have all these characters, you can open up all these sounds, monster sounds. And this is so awesome that you've mentioned that because there's a lot of this going on. And that's so neat that you're open to using your voice in those ways. Would you ever do covers on YouTube in different genres or anything like that? I've got like, you know like a note on my phone where it's just like all these crazy ideas that I could do. And I've, you know, I've been wanting to make covers and, you know, I, the, the problem is I just don't have a whole lot of time. So I've got, yeah. I've got, I've, I've, <laughs> I've got like a bank full of ideas, but I, I, time is really the only thing I don't have so much of, but I have absolutely thought about like really doing a lot of covers on, on my YouTube. Um, you know, I, I did do a, a couple of them last year. I did a cover of uh, Orville Peck's, why am I spacing on the song? Either way, I did Orville Peck, which is like a country artist. I did uh, Lana Del Rey, and then I did Billie Eilish. Oh, I remember that. Yes, I remember that. Yes, I remember seeing that. And for me, that was that was a purely like vocal exercise in the sense where I was like, the rules that I set up, I was like, you got to sing the songs in their original keys. And so, you know, like, wow. And some of those were like female artists. So that must have been a little difficult. The Billie Eilish one was like, I think it went, I think it went to like C, a D five or so. It was like way up there. You know, I figured out a, a, a way to do it. And now do I want to sing up there all the time? No, but it was really just a kind of exercise. Like, can I do this? Can I, you know, sit down with pen and paper and like write down and think about how to achieve each of these notes and like, you know, reverse engineer the song and hopefully become a better vocalist for it. And the Orville Peck song was actually too low for me. So I'm like, okay, how do I sing so low? Wow. Interesting. Wow. What a challenge. That's I like how you have posed challenges to yourself. Like these are goals. These are deadlines. These are the parameters. I decided when I'm doing the cover, I'm not going to change the key. I think these are really cool. And they're part of what keeps you growing and, and learning. If you don't pose a little challenge like that, you, you, you didn't realize, oh, wow, I can get to that D5. You know, it's also yeah. confidence building. Absolutely. It, and it, it really, it, it really showed me that if I need to do something, I can figure out a way to do it. Because a lot of times, you know, if you're, you know, writing a song, obviously you want to try and stay in the center of your voice just because it, it sounds the best, right? Like when you're really shoving yourself way up there, it doesn't always sound great. So you want to stay where you're comfortable and where you sound good. Um, but 
it's also important to push your your limits even in your own music. And so um, it gave me sort of the, the tool set when I'm like sitting here and I'm like writing a song and I might go, oh, that's too high. Let me take it down. Or maybe I can figure out how to sing that a sharp or, you know, it's like, how can I uh, get the right support balance, the right sort of chord density, right? Like all those types of things. Like it was a very, it was a very useful exercise. I think that is important to note. You know, I'm always being like, just change the key, change the key, change the key. But within reason, you know, within things that are in your physical capacity, you know, that is an okay thing to do to challenge ourselves because otherwise we don't realize the capability of our voice. Sometimes we limit it. So I think that's really, really important. And I, I, and I really love that you, you, you are exemplifying giving challenges to yourself as a vocalist. And a lot of them are quite public. You've posted the covers and things like that. And it's definitely encouraging to see people go, okay, things do not have to be perfect for me to put them out in public. I'm definitely guilty of that, over-perfecting things before I put it out. So what I want to do is ask you now, as the we're getting to the end here, what are some things that you would tell sort of a new vocalist? One thing I find disconcerting for the younger, newer musicians is on the one hand, they have all of this amazing access to information. They can sit here and listen to your advice on the podcast. They can listen to interviews with every single one of their favorite vocalists. They can look at YouTube channels like mine and all the bunch of YouTube channels about how to do vocals. So they have all of these resources. But then the thing I find disconcerting is that they go into this world that it is like, now jump into a hive of bees. Now jump into that <laughs> pile of fire ants <laughs> and they're looking at it and I, by that I mean certainly the trolls the harshness of the audience I think it's very difficult especially for a vocalist where it can feel very personal or any sort of artist to put yourself out there so you know how do you what would you say to someone looking at you know their favorite artists and seeing that even their favorite artist is getting these really tough comments getting really critiqued. I mean, it's hard for a young artist to look at that and go, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> you look at that and you go, oh God, I, you know, whereas in our time you couldn't comment or see other people's commentary or see yeah. an artist taking the brunt of someone's opinion. I mean, what would you say to new artists today to keep them encouraging and encourage them to step out into this world that you're in? You know, for, for me, like the fear never went away or like, let's say, let's say the trepidation. You know, mm -hmm. because, um, of course, I feel self-conscious before I release a new song. And, you know, just before I hit upload on my distributor, I'm like, is this song good enough? Is this ready? You know, I still have these conversations with myself. Um, but I think it's all about just kind of uh, accepting the fact that nothing you ever do is going to be perfect and you're not going to be able to to please everyone. And... Uh, Obviously, when I was younger, it was a it was a lot harder to not internalize the negativity. Um, but I think as long as you stay focused on your goal and you really are believing in what it is that you're doing, if you believe that what you have to say is something that the world should hear, um, that should sort of um, it doesn't insulate you from it, but it at least 
it's it's a bit of armor, right? Like sometimes yeah. an arrow gets through like at the armpit and you're like, oh, that one hurt. But then, you know, mm-hmm. you just keep you just keep going. <laughs> so true, though. <laughs> yeah. And I always tell too, like new people, brand new people, not established artists like yourself who have a dedicated audience uh, who are positive people. You've got a big audience of people who like you there, too. So it's easier just to delete the trolls. But at the same time, um, brand, brand new people, especially if they're doing covers, I always tell them just turn the comments off. I mean, in the history of music, you know, and art in general, for hundreds of years, you couldn't comment on the art and have the anybody but the people. If a video came out on Headbangers Ball, only your bro in the room next to you could hear what your opinion was. Exactly. You can't leave like 600 comments that everyone in Metallica then reads, yeah. you know, like you can now. And, uh, you know, it is art. I always say like, well, why do you need people to comment on you know, why does all art need commentary? Because for hundreds of years, this was how it was. And now we have audiences, we interact with, you have a Patreon, you have folks that you would leave it open to, of course, because you're already established. But I think even brand new people, I don't even think they need to hear some of that. I think they can just turn it off for a little while, you know? For sure. But one thing to sort of keep in mind is that like the more sort of engagement that a video gets, the more Mm, the algorithm mm -hmm. rewards it. So it's it is a it is a terrible it is a terrible balancing act. So it's the way the way that I try to look at it is, you know, I do read almost every comment that I get. And instead of engaging with the negative ones, I only reinforce the positive ones. I used to like engage with the trolls all the time, which was just you know, probably the stupidest thing that I could <laughs> ever do. It's hard not to because you're like, yeah, well, but you know, like you, you, you have an immediate reaction to what they're saying. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's if you can if you can sort of like get get past that initial like knee jerk, like you want to be like, if you could just get over that and and actually not give them what they want, which is attention. Um, and, you know, for some reason, like I'll, I'll scroll through like my comments on, on YouTube or something. And then it's like all the positive ones have like my little heart next to it because, it, you know, when you when you heart something. Oh, yeah, it, you heart the show. comment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You heart the comment. And then you just see all the hearts and then you just see like a lonely little negative comment with no no reactions, no thumbs up, no thumbs down, no heart, no nothing. And you're just like. Oh, poor, sad little troll couldn't get anything. So it actually makes me <laughs> uh, that that actually makes me feel slightly warm and f- fuzzy inside. But I think mm-hmm. I think in general, if you believe in what it is that you're doing, it makes all the sort of negative aspects worthwhile. And and I mention this because I think it's sort of useful. Like I'm terrified of flying. Like I oh, wow. hate flying it Mm -hmm. it, and i and and every time when i'm getting onto a plane i'm literally making my peace with death because i'm so scared of it but i love what i do so much that Mm -hmm. i'm like you just gotta do it you gotta you gotta like close your eyes take a deep breath and get on the goddamn plane and 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 so i feel like this and i have i have terrible stage fright i've always had terrible stage fright wow yeah i wouldn't know that either but it, you know, it, it's, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses and we all have, you know, our, our uh, crosses to bear. And I think that if you believe enough and care enough uh, about what it is that you're doing, then those things, all that negativity, it feels trivial because it is. And I think you're exemplifying exactly one of the things I'm always saying, feel the fear, but do it anyway. You know, that's right. Yes, yes. Feel the Mm -hmm. fear, but do it anyways. 
That's what you're doing. You're literally doing that when you get on that plane, when you get on that stage, you know, when you put out a new song, everything that you have talked about today is an example of that. Yep. Well, thank you so much because this was a really interesting and inspiring podcast. I think people are going to be fascinated by your career and your journey. In fact, I think we could have talked for another hour and a half, but we're both vocalists. We just can't do that. So, <laughs> but it was wonderful having you. Thank you so much. And where can people now follow Daniel Graves and your music and your Patreon? Where can they see all this? Pretty much every social. My my personal is I am Daniel Graves. And then uh, all the band stuff is just simply Aesthetic Perfection. Instagram, Aesthetic Perfection. Facebook, Aesthetic Perfection. My website, aesthetic-perfection.net. You just Google Aesthetic Perfection on there. Yeah. Everybody follow Daniel. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Voice Hacks podcast. It's been awesome to have you. It's been an honor. Thank you so, so much. That wraps up this episode of the Voice Hacks podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. 